This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. 2 Peter chapter 1. And it's kind of a, it, you could almost call it a series within a series. Now, this is part of the series of Bible studies we kicked off a while back called Letters to Young Churches. And it encompasses all of the general epistles of the apostles, Peter, Paul, Jude, James, and so forth. Uh, letters that were written to churches and to congregations. That's as opposed to the pastoral epistles or personal epistles, you could call them, which were letters written by uh, Paul, in most cases, Paul to individuals like Titus or Timothy or Philemon. So, but within that series, we come across, when we got into this paragraph here that begins in verse five, where it says, and besides this giving all diligence, this is sort of a series within the greater series of letters of the apostles to the churches this is a series on adding to your faith. Again, carrying it from verse 5. And beside all this, Peter says, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness. And that's about where we left off last week was that part right there. Godliness. We just touched on it a little bit. And that's the only part that we'll review this week is this one right here godliness. We already talked about virtue at at sort of a high level. When we get into 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we're going to get into a lot more detail about what virtues we're really talking about. It's not all just the fruit of the Spirit. There are other biblical virtues that the Bible teaches us to, uh, to both possess and to demonstrate in our Christian lives, and that's what we ought to do, amen? It's what we ought to do. And so he mentions virtue. We already talked about virtue. And we already talked about knowledge and what it takes to add knowledge to your virtue. It takes an effort, a concerted effort to get the word of God into your head and then down into your heart. Because it's only, as we said many, many times, and we'll probably beat that drum till we break it, until we break it. It's not until the word of God is in your heart that it really becomes a part of you and you really make a practice out of it. It becomes part of who and what you are. And then it's not a conformity issue, it's a transformity issue. You find yourself having been transformed from within by the renewing of your mind in Jesus Christ and by the work of the Holy Ghost within you and not merely conformed by an outward effort on the outside. So temperance, he then says after that, and to temperance, patience, and patience, godliness, godliness, We never get a good definition about that. We never really learn a good definition of what godliness is. So what is godliness? What is godliness? Well, it speaks of being godly, which speaks of being godlike. And that's not really talking about godlike in stature or power. You can snap your fingers and all your enemies will turn to dust or something like that. We wouldn't want to do that anyway. That That isn't the spirit of Christ. It really isn't. And it's not the time for judgment. And God will handle that when it is time. So if it's not speaking about God-like in that sort of context, then certainly he must be talking about 
the virtue and the character and the goodness of Almighty God. And all throughout the New Testament especially, we find admonitions to be his dear children. He talks about being children of light. And it seems to steer us, the Word of God seems to steer us as Christians away from being hostile, super judgy, if I may uh, sort of use modern vernacular, okay? It steers us away from being hostile, hate-filled, hyper-judgmental people that look down our noses at anybody who's not like us. And I know that that's a temptation among Christians of all ranks, it really is, or of all uh, denominations or schools of thought, whatever you want to call them. It is a temptation to many Christians because once you come to a saving knowledge of the truth and you learn more and more about the truth and you become aware of your own sort of baseline virtue in Jesus Christ, then the devil comes to tempt the Christian to spiritual pride. Ooh, look how good you are. Look how amazing you are. You believe in the one true God. You're not a sucker like all these other people. And he uses that kind of language when he speaks to your thoughts and tries to stick tries to steer your thinking in a certain direction. But we never have to fall for that. We never do. There's nothing saying that we ever have to succumb to the devil's own temptations. Godliness. We're steered away from being the judgmental types. Doesn't mean that we never judge. It just means that we're never judging, that we ought not to be judging with unbalanced judgment or with hatred in our hearts contempt or superiority towards other people. If there's anything good in us at all, it's only because of Jesus Christ. And the fact that we're even saved at all is because of Jesus Christ. And Peter said, I believe it was in his first epistle, he said, if the righteous scarcely be saved. If the righteous scarcely be saved, where will the sinner and the ungodly appear? And so you and I are scarcely saved. And it's not because God's salvation is weak, but it's because it it took something divine to save us. It really did. So just sort of let that rest where it may. Godliness is something that needs to be a part of our Christian character. It really does. Godliness of conduct God and behavior, godliness of virtue, godliness of attitude. All of these things need to be a part of what we are. It really does. Because if it's not, the world will see it and they'll know that person's a hypocrite or they'll think that person's a hypocrite or there's something lacking in that person's experience. And while we ought not to, the chief motivation for our Christian life ought not necessarily to be just the opinions of unbelievers because you're never going to please everybody. That's in life. That's in anything at all. Even in churches. Trust me, preachers try. We try to please everybody, but we know we can't. And so there's a point where we know we can't so why try? We'll just shoot for pleasing God and then it'll all be well for the most part. Amen? Same way with you. You can't please everybody. So aim for pleasing God. Aim for pleasing God and you can't go wrong. Okay? Godliness. Add to your patience godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. So if these last two things here, brotherly kindness and charity... Notice how the, there's sort of a progression in this whole list of things. Virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, charity. There's a progression to these. It starts in the deepest and innermost part of your heart and who you are. The very first of these things, faith, and that's the gift of God. That's not something we can add to ourselves. 
You can practice what faith you have, but the faith that you have was given to you by Almighty God. But then he talks about virtue. Well, that's also very much an inward work, okay? Because if we exhibit outward virtue, and it's not really on the inside, that's hypocrisy. That's called virtue signaling. That's called putting on a show. But real virtue begins on the inside, in the deepest part of you, in your heart and your mind, okay? And then he speaks of knowledge. Well, that's obviously a very inner part of the person. That deals with the knowledge of your mind, okay? And temperance, likewise, begins on the inside, is evident on the outside. And then godliness, likewise, begins on the inside. It's also evident on the outside in the way that we live, communicate, and everything else. Brotherly kindness Again, it begins on the inside, but it's very evident on the outside. You can say you love your brother, but how do you treat him? Right? You can say you love your sister in the Lord, but how do you treat him? Is it uh, is your only style of humor that's directed toward them vicious and cruel? Some people, that's the only kind of sense of humor they have. It's always some kind of cutting thing that's designed to injure and cut them down. The New Testament, the apostle talks about that. He calls that jesting and he condemns it. He condemns it. I mean, I'm all for a good joke and I'm all for a good joke that maybe even kind of teases somebody in a, in a lighthearted manner. Really, I, I really do like that. That sort of thing can be one, lots of fun at another brother's expense, but with no hatred or contempt behind it. You're not really trying to do any injury to somebody. It's one thing to tease and joke in a lighthearted manner, and it's, it's all good fun, and you know it is, and the spirit is there, and you can tell they're not really doing anything bad with this. It's another thing to go on the attack and mask it as humor, and people know the difference. They really do. They may not be able to articulate it and call someone out on it, but they do know the difference. They can tell when somebody's just joking with them or when somebody's really trying to to, to put a knife in their heart about something about their life. And so brotherly kindness is a real thing. We ought to be how we ought to be. And, did, and we even talked about this. And then we preached on this in, in, the, in our Passover communion service that we had uh, on, during the week of Easter. We talked about how Jesus gave a new commandment that ye love one another. So shall all men know that ye are my disciples. The way we treat one another is the evidence of our discipleship in Jesus Christ. Amen? And so if we treat one another with love and kindness, friendship, brotherly kindness, then it's an evidence. It's an evidence that... That's not to say that disagreements never arise, okay? It's not to say that you don't have a brother or sister in the Lord that doesn't ever have a disagreement on something. Now, probably more than at any time in my lifetime, we're so divided as a country and, and not everybody coming into the faith, not everybody walking into the church is a conservative Republican. I'm just tossing that out there as a reminder. Some folks come in, they're liberal, they're liberal Democrats or they're just liberals or they're liberal independents or they might even be some far whacked out leftist. You never know. They can still get saved. They can, their politics don't matter. Give them time to come to know the Lord. Give them time to really genuinely get saved. Get the Holy Ghost, amen? Maybe we don't say enough about that, and we need to, but give them time for the Lord to work in their lives, and then, then their relationship with God will begin to inform their opinions, their policies, and their politics, and then they'll become a Republican, right? I don't know if that's really what they need to be. 
Republicanism does not equal Christianity. And there are tons of corrupt Republicans out there, just as, just as much as there are corrupt Democrats and everybody else. It's just they tend to have different goals and different values, okay? So let's not make that mistake of equating those things. They tend to overlap a lot because they share similar goals, but it's, that's not a guarantee. It really is not a guarantee. And then you've got people that are conservative in some things and absolutely lunatic over the rainbow on something else. And you wonder how they managed to get that both in their mind at the same time. Brotherly kindness. I'm not going to say that it helps to iron all of that out, but it certainly helps to, you know, you get somebody that's of a, let's just say a radically unbiblical political ideology or something like that. But they get saved. They come to know the Lord. Now God's working in them. Well, so what's a brother to do? Jack him up for being a Democrat or a liberal or a leftist or a communist or something like that. Or for being a rhino because, you know, we can always find something that's Republican in name only. I wasn't talking about the horned animal because that doesn't make any sense, you know. You rhinoceros. But, you know, you can always find something to divide on. Right? And some politicians specialize in that. Divide and conquer. Divide and rule. That was a, uh, that was a tactic of British colonialism. It really was back in the heyday of the British Empire. But brotherly kindness demonstrated to somebody of a different political ideology than yours, yet they love the Lord and the Lord is working in their life. That'll help keep a brother. That'll help keep a sister. Amen? It will give God time to work in them as they continue to read and grow in knowledge. They continue to add knowledge to their virtue, like Peter says here, then it'll work. God will work it all out in them. And you might find yourself as you continue to grow. We all, as we continue to grow in Christ, we might shift some of our political views on some things. 25 years ago, I used to loudly and stupidly, but loudly proclaim that I was a prohibitionist. Oh yeah, that's me. I'm a prohibitionist. Get rid of all that stuff. Burn the industry to the ground. You know, real zealous. Institute the law of God. Make the country a theocracy type of thing. But you learn that that sort of thing doesn't really work. It's Jesus that saves, not laws. Now laws are good and they have their place, so don't misunderstand me there. But it's only Jesus that saves. It's only Jesus that saves. So Let's remember that and let's practice that one towards another. And most Christians, you don't even have to tell them this. Most you don't even have to because it occurs within them by nature. The Holy Spirit working within them automatically. Brothers treat brothers well. Sisters treat sisters well. Brothers and sisters treat each other well. Just to cover all the directions on that, okay? We treat each other well with brotherly kindness, sisterly kindness, charity, long-suffering, forgiveness, amen? forgiveness. I cannot overemphasize the importance of that within a church. So a brother said something harshly to me. Okay, well, did he have a good reason to? That's the first question that comes to my mind. Did he have a good reason to? Maybe yes, maybe no. But he still said and said it harshly. Well, maybe not, but surely you can forgive him. Okay, and surely he can forgive you because certainly something provoked him to speak harshly. It all, it, it goes both ways all the time. Brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness. Because we've got the same father after all, don't we? We've got the same one. And to brotherly kindness, charity. And we know what that word means. Love. 
to brotherly kindness, love. So aren't, aren't those the same thing? Kindness and love, aren't they almost synonymous? No, not really. Um, if you ever want to see a society where everybody's kind to you, but nobody really loves you, go to Japan. Okay, That's not a crack on the Japanese. It's just an observation I heard one man make. And uh, I have not been there myself, so I can't, I can't be a witness to that with my own eyes. But it seems to be an observation. It seems to be, I won't say a common report, but it seems to be a, a feature of their culture over there. There is a a baseline courtesy and politeness that gets exhibited to almost everyone for the most part. And what exactly the scaffolding is underneath that, I don't really know. But actual love and loving kindness, charity, that sort of thing, godly love, doesn't so much exist over there as part of their culture. Um, people, you know, that's not to say that there are not strong bonds, but you, know, you go there and you're not Japanese yourself. And even if you are Japanese, those two aren't necessarily the same thing. And they don't always go hand in hand. But where God is in the human heart, that love will be there. And so add to your faith virtue and add to your virtue knowledge and add to your knowledge temperance and add to your temperance patience and add to your patience godliness and add to your godliness brotherly kindness and add to your brotherly kindness love. In fact, let love, let every one of these things in this list be shot through with selfless, pure-hearted love towards one another, okay? And that's love, not lust. That's love, not... Man, we can go into a whole teaching on love, start breaking out the Greek on this one if we wanted to, but I don't want to lose the thread of this for getting lost in the details. Real love, you know what that is. And you know how that behaves itself. And you know how that, how that works in your own life and in the life of one another. And then, so well, what's the benefit of that? There's too many to mention or probably far too much to say on that to really get down deep into that. But one of the chief benefits of it is when you have a brother or sister that gets all caught up in a spiritual battle and their thinking isn't straight, they may not be able to reason their way out of their battle. They may not even be able to think their way out of their battle remembering scriptures. But love operates at a level so much deeper than that. They can remember the love that they experience in the house of God and among the brothers and sisters. Amen. Among the disciples of our Lord. And that's one of the things that's hardest for a person to resist is the love of the brethren when that love is real and unfeigned. Because they know it's just like if again, if you had good parents, you knew no matter how much you might have been in trouble with them, they loved you. And there were times that that was all that you had to stand on was that love. So there we have it. Now, the paragraph's not done, but that list is he continues in verse eight. For if these things be in you, that's all of these things, faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness and love. If these things be in you and abound, so not in you a little bit, but if they are in you and they abound, okay, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you abound in these things, if you abound in these traits, if you work on them and develop them and let them grow, you nurture them in your own lives, then this is what it does for you. And it doesn't just do it for you. It does it for the whole body of Christ. It benefits all of us. 
If these abound in you, they'll make you fruitful in Jesus Christ. They'll make you profitable in Jesus Christ. They'll they'll make you abound to the strengthening and the betterment of the entire body of Christ where you are planted. And in the most immediate sense, that's the local congregation. That's you. That's everybody that comes to this house of God. And to whatever extent, you know, folks that are tuning in and maybe have never come to this church, they'll see it and they'll see the reality in you. They'll know that they're not walking into some dried up, dead museum church that hasn't experienced the love of God in 40 years. They'll know that they're in a place that's real and where God is real and alive in the hearts and the minds of the brothers and the sisters. Verse nine, though, he says this, and this is the warning to us. Verse nine, he says, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So if these things are in you and they abound, they make you so that you will never be barren, neither unfruitful in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we lack these things, he says that we're blind. We can't even see. We lack, we're in the same state that those Pharisees were in back there in the Gospels. And Jesus even told them, point blank, because you say that you see, you are blind. You know, because their minds were in a different place. And they were so full of knowledge, they thought they knew it all and they understood it all. And they were very lifted up in pride uh, in that. We understand that. But if we lack these things that Peter's talking about, if we lack faith, well, of course we're blind. Virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. If we lack these things, we're blind and we cannot see afar off. And then the kiss of death. And that's the second part right here, the second part of the verse. And hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. That is a kiss of death to the Christian. That we should forget that we were purged of our old sins. And that can happen sometimes when we're not walking circumspect. And we're, we're pulling in from other parts of Scripture and tying it into this, but, but that's what gives us a deeper understanding. So praise God for that. When we forget what God saved us out of, and I don't mean just one or two of the sins, I mean the whole life of sin. When we forget it's like, well, you preached not long ago about remember not. Yeah, and there's a time for that. But there's also a time to look to the ditch from once for the pit from one, from whence we were digged. Okay? I might have chewed up that King James English a little bit, but there's a time to look back and remember. Thank you, Jesus. I'm not that anymore. And, the, and there's no pride that comes with that. It should, it should really inspire a refreshment to our humility. You know, when we look back to that, especially when we start feeling self-righteous and we start feeling superior uh, to other people or even to another church or something like that. It's like, no, no, remember what you used to be. And then thank God you're not that anymore. And it, it's, it's good to do that every so often. He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So why is that the kiss of death? Because when you forget that you were purged of your old sins, then the siren song that comes from those sins uh, it can begin to hum in your ears again, and that can become a temptation again. And you find yourself thinking like this, as the devil's low-budget minions whisper in your ears, you know, 
Oh, hey, you remember that song? Oh, that song used to, that used to be your jam. You remember that? Oh, yeah. You remember the good times you used to have and you used to listen to that? You'd hear that at the club. And then it's all a chain of associations in your memory from that point forward. And then you're thinking about what you used to smoke and what you used to drink. And then the boys that you used to be with, if you're a basic bro, you know, you start to think, you get to thinking about all of those different things. And then it's, it starts to come together into a kind of orchestra in your mind of the good old days. And then the Holy Spirit has to kick it into overdrive and remind you of the words of Paul. What profit had ye in those things of which ye are now ashamed? And then you feel ashamed that you found yourself longing for those. Or maybe you don't feel ashamed. Maybe you just go, maybe you just laugh at the devil as your sense of proportion awakens and you're like, I was miserable in those days. I don't ever want to live that again. And you just laugh at the enemy and go on about your Christian life. Amen? There's a time for that too. There really is. So let us not forget what we were purged from. Let's not forget so that we're never tempted to go back to it again. It is the doom of cultures that they forget their own history. And I know there's been a lot said about that by other people. There's nothing new that I could add to that. But it's a fact. When we forget the things that forged us as a nation, we'll be tempted to fall into the same tyrannies as our predecessors, speaking about nations. And it happens in people too. When you forget the slavery from which God brought you out of, remember the Jews did that at times. They did it early, didn't they? Weren't they still in the wilderness when they started complaining about, would to God we had stayed in Egypt and then pining for the leeks and the garlics, but... Why didn't they remember the beatings and the slavery? I've never met. Now I got to be careful about that. I've never met a former slave, period. But I'm sure that had I lived 100 years ago, I would have never met 120 years ago. I would have never met a former slave who longed for the good old days of working on the plantation. I don't think there were such. Just saying, wasn't there, couldn't say for certain, but it strikes me as a reasonable presumption. So there we have it. Next paragraph begins, verse 10. Wherefore the rather, brethren, giving diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So in the previous paragraph, he tells us, What we as believers, as brothers and sisters in the common faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, what we ought to be putting forth an effort to, uh, towards to add these things to our faith. All of these different things, virtues and knowledge and temperance and everything else that we've repeated several times already. And he tells us what, how it will bless us if they're in us and these things abound. And then he says, wherefore the rather give diligence to make your calling and election sure. What does that mean? Your Christianity, right? Let's make it personal since we're a nice, cozy, small group here, okay? Let's make it personal. You name the name of Christ and identify with the name of Christ. Amen? That's why we call ourselves Christians and have been called Christians since Antioch, at least, okay? At least according to the book of Acts. We were first called Christians in Antioch, I think. Okay, so if we name the name of Christ, we claim the name of Christ, we don't claim it in vain, 
Meaning we claim it, we, we mean it, it's sincere, and whatsoever, what we know to do and to be right now within the grace of God, that's what we're doing. We're doing what we know to do. We're being what we know to be. We're letting God work in our lives and we're not fighting Him. Okay? He says, make your calling and election sure. What does it mean to do that? Settle it first in your mind and in your heart. If you haven't already, nail it down. Fix it aloud. Speak it out loud if you have to. Okay? Because a spoken word really does help to cement something into reality. It does. It gives your, it gives your thoughts body and substance. It really does. Okay? Settle it in your mind and in your heart. I am and will remain a Christian. And nothing's going to take me down from this. By the grace of God. I'm not saying you say that as a boast. Or if it is a boast, make sure your boast is in Jesus Christ and not in your own ability or your own resolve. But settle it. He says, make your calling and election sure. That's your relationship with God that he's talking about. So I did that years ago. Well, good, keep it sure. But a lot of times, especially with the newer believer, after they've come through the high and the rush of their first fervor in the faith, and then the training wheels start to come off and we start encountering some real battles and things like that. It's that adolescent, maybe you could call it that. It's that adolescent Christian that may start to waver or falter and that the devil can speak to most effectively about, you're not cut out for this. You can't be a Christian. I know what you used to be and I know what you did last weekend. You know, things like that. And prayerfully, you know, you're at the place where you didn't do anything last weekend that you had to be ashamed of. But the devil's an accuser and a liar, and we know that that's how he works. Make your calling and election sure so that nothing he has to say to you will shake your faith to the point that you want to just walk away from it, either in confusion or defeat or anything else. Make your calling and election sure. You're a Christian, make it certain. In your mind. And be resolute by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Be resolute. No matter what. Even if I fall flat on my face, I am not going to give up on my relationship with God. And I will never, I will never deny His name. Either by word or deed. And so you make your calling and election sure. Because he says this here, uh, right after that word sure. He says, for if ye do these things, what things? If you make your calling and election sure, and if you allow these virtues and these other attributes of the Christian character and of the godly life, if you, if you possess and exhibit them and practice them and demonstrate them and live them and let them become a part of who you are, why is it that people are, why is it that people are so quick and ready and willing to identify with the worst parts of their own character and then justify it like this one. Have you heard this one? Oh, well, I, well, I'm Irish. I got a hot temper. What's Irish got to do with any of that? It's a cultural norm, perhaps, because you hear Italians say the same thing and Scottish people say the same thing. And, and, and maybe half a dozen different other nationalities or ethnicities. Oh, well, I'm a redhead. I've got a fiery temper. Do you know why you're a redhead with a fiery temper? Because somebody taught you when you were young that redheads, it's okay if they have fiery tempers. 
There are brunettes that can say the same thing. Well, I'm a blonde. I have more fun. Not if you're a clinically depressed blonde. You see all these these subtle, silly little lies that just pervade culture and pervade societies, and they they influence the way that people think, and then and then they create a justification. Then and then people always feel justified by it. But you're not a redhead anymore, or an Italian anymore, or a brunette, or an Irishman, or a Nigerian. You're not any of these things anymore. You you might be those things still. But you're in Christ. Your culture is Christ now. Let that sink in for a second. I don't know if any smile is going to cross any people's faces, but that's all right. right. We're not doing this for, we're not, we're not doing this for, for, for approval, certainly. We're doing this because it's the truth. You're not these different things anymore. You're a Christian now. And so, just because your mom had one of those magical chanclas that she could throw and it could go around a corner doesn't mean that you need to. You can discipline your children in a godly way without flinging a shoe across the house and smacking them in the head. Just saying. Your culture is Christian now. It's not Mexican. It's not German. It's none of that. I'm not saying that all of that's bad. I'm just saying... When you, it's a mark of Christian maturity when you begin to consciously and willingly identify yourself more with Christ than with any other group, any other group at all. And so it speaks of our maturity. If you do these things, ye shall never fall. Now that's the one, we're going to close it on this, but I'm not done quite yet. If ye do these things, listen to me, Christian, Strong Christian, weak Christian. If you do these things, you shall never fall. Man, who doesn't want that in the faith? Because so many Christians are shaky about whether or not they'll make it. And the doubt's all in their own mind. Okay, But we have the promise here. If we give ourselves to these things, do these things and make them part of who we are, and stop claiming all these other things. Well, I'm this, and so I got a hot temper. Well, I'm this, and so I got a short fuse. Well, I'm this, and so we tend to be much more passionate with the women. It's like, what? No, 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 no. Whether that's even true or not. And a lot of times, not. It's just a bunch of um, baloney, okay? True or not. We're in Christ now. We're whole new creatures, and we got a whole new family and a whole new culture we're a part of, and that's a good one. Do these things, and then let them Let those define your character and leave off all the stuff from the old life, the old culture, the old country, what grandma told you when you were young. If you do these things, you'll never fall. So let's do these things and let's do them together as a family and alone when we're alone. Let's do them. Let's do them to the glory of God. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.